First and foremost, the Rotten or Righteous podcast is a comedy show. We strive to review pop culture in a humorous, entertaining, and lighthearted way with a Christian slant. While this is still our goal as we review the documentary Murder Among the Mormons and jokes will be made and sarcasm employed, I do want to take a moment and say that we do not mean any disrespect to the victims or the families of the victims who were involved in the senseless bombings that occurred in Salt Lake City in 1985. You have our thoughts and our prayers, as I imagine this documentary brought up many painful feelings that have been dormant for decades. Also, the following podcast reviews a true crime story that involves murder that actually happened. There may be some who may want to skip this episode or refrain from listening to it in front of small children. Listener discretion is advised. This week on a super serious true crime episode of Rotten or Righteous, we answer the super serious true crime question. Did they say how it came to be known as the Salamander Letter? Yeah, I must have it's, a, that it's about salamanders. <laughs> That's how it came to be known, the salamander letter, because it talks about salamanders. I it didn't explicitly time. say that, but I feel like most, no, it most explicitly, people put that together. It explicitly <laughs> highlighted in the documentary the word salamander on the letter. <laughs> Hear ye, hear ye, listeners. It's I, Joe Smith. Oh, Welcome my. back to Rotten and Righteous. Okay, let's try this for real. Hello and welcome to Rotten and Righteous. Woo! Murder! <laughs> Murdered Mormons! <laughs> oh, that's why the disclaimer is there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Rotten or Righteous, the podcast that has gotten where it is today by following a white salamander. With me today, as always, in the Mormon document world, he is a rock star, Luke Taylor. Hello. Luke. If a collection of his diaries came out, it wouldn't rock the foundation of the church, but it sure would disappoint his parents. Scott Judge. <laughs> you don't know how true that is. <laughs> Does anyone keep diaries here? I or don't. Or journals? And me, for the next three episodes, I'm going to make... Apparently Zach does. No, I don't. I've tried a thousand times, but I always get bored and just not. And me, per my wife's request, I'm just going to insert random true crime catchphrases, and I've got full body chills. I'm Zach Geiler. I don't know what that was from. She just told me to say it. <laughs> Never heard it. Uh, before we begin, I do have to uh, and tell you guys that um, I, I'm in I'm in kind of the doghouse right now. No, I know, hard to believe. Uh, I, I tried to repair a leaky sink, and uh, when I, I tried to repair it, it was so old and decrepit that the second I tried to tighten the 
<laughs> the, the bolt to stop the leak, everything just kind of disintegrated. <laughs> so, so like, yeah, so, so the sink didn't have hot water for a while, and, and I said, you know, why don't we just replace the whole sink, trying to be nice. And so I went to, to Lowe's the other day and started looking at, at vanities and sinks. That stuff's expensive. Yes. Like, too expensive. Matter of fact, the faucets all have weird names. You ever look? Have you looked at a faucet recently, Scott? No, I haven't. They have human names, but like weird human names. Yeah, like the Carlton and the Antoinette. Oh, look at here! This this run right here is the Sigmund. You have to sound sophisticated. No one's gonna buy a sink if it's called the Zack. Well, I'm not. I I don't want to buy a sink called anything. Just call it a faucet. So instead of just replacing the the faucet, that was my first idea. Is I like, okay, this is too expensive. I'm just gonna replace the faucet. And then I looked at faucets, and I was like, okay, I found one I like, and I and I went to go get it. But then I saw at the corner of my eye a whole setup, um, a whole sink, faucet, drainage, all the pipes package for the same price as I was gonna pay for this faucet. So. Uh, long story short, I put a, uh, a laundry sink in our bathroom, and Kelsey's not happy with it. <laughs> What's a laundry sink? It's a great big white tub that sits about two and a half foot off the ground. <laughs> oh, it's like a square. It's like two and a half feet wide by two and a like half feet somebody... tall and deep. Somebody's garage. <laughs> they got one of those sinks. That oh they yeah. Used to watch. I was like, perfect. I mean, and, and Kelsey's not pleased about this. I don't I know, see why. That I was mean, a that was a frugal, functional decision. It was exactly, exactly. I mean, it's so big. Joseph can have baths in it. <laughs> we don't have a bath. It's so tub. big. It's You're perfect. not far from having a bath in it. But I, I guess so, I, uh... I, I think the problem is I didn't tell her. And then when I got home from Lowe's, she and Joseph were already in bed. And I installed it that night, so when she woke up, the first thing she saw was this great big white tub sitting in the middle of her, her bathroom. Did she specify what she wanted? Um, No, but I think it's fair to say, according to her, that I should have known this isn't what she wanted. This this laundry sink is not what she wanted. You think? You know, the next time the washer goes wrong, why don't you just grab her a washboard to put in this tub? <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm not disappointed in it. I can, you can wash your hair in it. Uh, we wash the dogs in it. And this they is are now nice. Your, I've this got is a now in your bathroom. Yeah, it's in my bathroom. I feel like, I feel like she, unless she specified. I mean, it's a hundred dollar setup. What more do you want? It runs water. Well, it holds water. It drains water. It costs. It's all good. Minuscule compared to one of these fancy vanities, and those vanity sinks are tiny. You couldn't fit. Yeah. You couldn't fit a baby in there. Laundry sink. Oh yeah, I see now. I said every farmer throughout the free world has one. Yeah, but I don't think that every farmer has one in their bathroom. I think that's that no. The... I don't know of any. <laughs> I feel like it's you know you're probably gonna set a trend. Take some photos, put them on Snapchat, Pinterest. Yes. yes. Everybody will be doing it here pretty soon. Listen, all right? It works. What more do you want? It works, and I didn't have to pay that much for it. 
I do have a plan. I'm going to build a facade around this thing. It's not just going to be a standing laundry sink. I mean, it is, but it's going to be hidden behind a nice cabinet that I'm building. But it's just funny that right now I just have a laundry sink. And the and I had to fit the pipes to it. And, and the way that the water hookup is so far away from the faucet that I haven't actually put the water to it yet. So Kelsey may just be mad that she hasn't had a sink to brush her teeth in or wash her face for the past week. That could very well be the case, too. Um, hey, you know what goes really, really well with a laundry sink, don't you? A boudet. I'm getting one. Can you buy those at Lowe's? Bidets? Oh, yeah, Lowe's has a, has a has a huge array of bidets. <clears throat> They have bidets for days. A bidet is like over a thousand bucks. Well, you're not looking at the right kind of bidet. What I'm what? looking at is basically a Honda gas-powered pressure washer that... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you, have to, you have to crank it yeah, and get you, it started you got the before pool. you use it. <laughs> you got the pull start right there, right next to the teepee. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and dive into this. The documentary opens with a man with a face like the Monopoly man and a voice like Winnie the Pooh saying that he doesn't want to answer an unknown question. Why? Because he doesn't want to make a hero out of him. Who's him? Don't know. But whoever he was, he was fantastic. (laughs) Here, here. If you're confused, that is an odd way to start out a documentary, by I mean, the way. Yeah, it's like, why don't you want to answer the question? Oh, bother. <laughs> Hello. What I happened to this man's voice? Because when he was younger, he didn't speak like that. I know, but he sounds exactly like Winnie the Pooh, and I love it. And I can't do a good Winnie the Pooh impression. I was working on it today, and I just never could get it other than, Hello, Piglet. <laughs> That's about as good as I got right there. But, uh,. Yeah, he looks like a man baby, but at by the end of this, I'm terrified of him. But it's okay. We'll get there. He may uh, be the bomber. As far as I know. Then we have old news footage of Dan Rather reporting on Assault Lake City bomb. And no, I'm not talking about uh, our Assault Lake City bombing. And I'm not talking about that Salt Lake City bombing. This is a whole different one I didn't know about uh, that killed a few people. On local news today... We have a terrible bombing in a little city called Salt Lake. That's my Dan Rather. It sounds like a cross between Jimmy Stewart and SpongeBob. Well, listen here. (laughs) My dear friends. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, uh, there's this big Salt Lake City bombing. Uh, Two bombs were ported in the beginning. And, and and the way this kind of played out was that there was only going to be two bombings. So you're in for a surprise at the end of this. Because they, they tack on a bonus bombing. Um, Remember, we did say that disclaimer at the beginning, so you can't get mad at me for saying these things. Uh, 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 but according to Rather and the other anchors, this story has everything you want. In a big news story, we've got documents being destroyed, a Watergate-style cover-up, and the involvement of the wealthiest church in America. And no, not Scientology. We're talking about the most wealthy church in America in the 80s. We're talking about the LDS, a.k.a. the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons. Mormons. 
We're also yeah, they don't like to be called Mormons. Yeah, I, I watched uh, uh, their address. Like I said, I am fascinated with the Mormons. So every year they give like a they give like an Apple style Mormon esque talk where they unveil all the new Mormon products coming out this year, and most of it's just keeping the short sleeve button up shirt uh, uh, manufacturers in business. But um. <laughs> But yeah, the, 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 the president of the church, it's not Thomas Monson anymore, that was the last one, but uh, the president of the church now said, or equated uh, the word Mormon with the N-word, and I said, mm, no, it's not, it's not the same, it's not the <laughs> it's not same at close. all, and you want to know why? Because I've said Mormon about 500 times, and I called it the N-word one time, and that's all I'm going to reference that. You can't well, say Russell that. Nelson... Russell Nelson? Russell's been, he's been president since 2018. Boom. Thomas Monson was the one before. I know yep. too much about Mormons. We're also told at the beginning that these bombing victims are connected. And at the center of this act of violence, something called the Salamander Letter, which threatens to change the origin of the Mormon church forever. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking murder today. And more than that, we're talking murder among the Mormons. And now I'm going to put some <laughs> dramatic music cue right here. <sighs> Did they say how it came to be known as the Salamander Letter? Yeah. I must have missed a, that. It's boy. about salamanders. <laughs> That's how it came to be known, the Salamander Letter, because it talks about salamanders. I it didn't explicitly time. say that, but I feel like... Most, no, it explicitly it explicitly <laughs> highlighted in the documentary the word salamander on the letter. <clears throat> I think he was taking some bad shrooms. Maybe Joseph was out eating some shrooms in the in the jungle or forest or wherever he was. And he, and he was just in, uh, had a few hallucinations. Uh, no, Joseph Is Smith? it possible that he could have been chasing an albino alligator? No, it's not. But Joseph Smith was in the biblical land of uh, upstate New York. Uh-huh, so, yes. Uh... <laughs> you might have seen... <clears throat> have you ever seen those giant salamanders that they have over in China? Right. This is probably what he was... He might have been following an albino one of these, which was probably... Uh, could have been mistaken as an albino alligator. There's no albino alligator. It's just white salamanders. Where, Scott, where are you getting alligators? You didn't even watch this, <laughs> Because did you? he was on shrooms. Oh, my goodness. He was hallucinating. But you know there's no... Guys, Maybe I, there's a baby I, I, albino I am, After crocodile. watching just, just one-third of this documentary, we've got to tone it down. Mormons don't mess around. <clears throat> <laughs> Do you want to end up dead? They're going to latter-day kick my butt. We're then show a, shown a dramatic scroll of library shelves as a male voice tells us that he really likes treasure stories. And why does he like treasure stories? He says, quote, because there's treasure in them. <laughs> That's not what he says. He does. He says, he says I've watched He says, because there's treasure and they find the treasure and then they ended up losing the treasure in the end and the treasure's hidden again. Still, that's what he said. Because, but he does. Joseph after, stole it on his after, salamander. All right, I'm going to need you guys to take down your ridiculous like five notches, or we're never going to get through this. 
All right. So it would be inappropriate for me to now say that the treasure wasn't hidden. The albino alligator ate it. There is no albino alligator. <laughs> if what you were saying made any sense to what we've already discussed, then yes, you could say it. You didn't even know the salamander letter was called the salamander letter because it talks about salamanders until I told you that. You're the only one that's not connecting the dots here, Zach. <clears throat> we've put this story together quite quite thoroughly and okay. bulletproof. I'm just going to cut you guys had... all out. I'm just going to tell it. Um, <laughs> you... <laughs> Hey, if that one guy made a friend with an octopus in South Africa, Joseph could have made a friend oh, with yes. a slimy creature in upstate New York. And he would have had to been under the water to befriend this creature. <laughs> Zach is having a stroke. <laughs> yes, we've finally done it. I suppose if an alligator was swimming like upright, head moving up and you were looking at it <clears throat> vertically you could mistake it as an angel with its little tiny arms because <laughs> you know you don't know what an angel looks like so and now it came to pass <laughs> all right. that after Alma had made an end of the speaking unto the people of the church which was established in the city of Zarahemia he ordered the priests and elders by laying hands according to... See, I'm just I'm just quoting back nonsense, just like you guys. Except mine's, nonsense. mine's from the book of Alma. We're Again, solving this mystery, Zach, and you're there's just no, hindering our progress. The mystery was solved! <laughs> we know who did it! Clearly not. I would know if I was allowed to watch ahead to Documentary 3. Did you watch all of the documentaries, Zach? No, I watched all of the first one. Did you watch the second one? No, I did not. I told you guys not to. Are you to. lying? No, I'm not. Are you lying? I've watched the first He's one lying. three different times, though, in order to get this down, but we're too busy talking about stupid giant salamanders that don't exist in America. How'd you solve the mystery, then? Because they said it had to be the church. Now i got to cut this out because we're trying to build up to that at the end. Uh... <laughs> So yeah, right, they're here. You know what? Let's just wrap it up now. Three people got blown up and the church did it. All right. Talk to you guys next week. <laughs> Good See show, ya. folks. <laughs> Watch out for lizards and salamanders. Eat your vegetables and say your prayers. <clears throat> we're shown a dramatic, or, or the we're shown a camera scrolling dramatically along library shelves where we're told by a male voice that he likes treasure stories because there's treasure in it and the treasure is temporarily found but then some calamity happens and the treasure is lost again and this voice belongs to a man who looks like a homeless santa wearing a blue button-up that is two sizes too small and his name <laughs> is ken sanders and he's a rare book and document dealer then a title card is shown and it reads salt lake city 1980 Five years before the bombing. Spoiler alert. We're then invited to meet the Mormons. Uh, it's a Cliff Note-esque rundown of the history of the Mormon church. The church is now today based in Salt Lake City, and it's relatively young, founded in 1829, less than 200 years ago, by a man named Joseph Smith. According to the Mormons, Joseph Smith followed the directions of an angel named Moroni and found some golden plates that were buried in his backyard. 
these gold plates were actually a book that, when translated, became the Book of Mormon. And this documentary, as they're explaining this, keeps showing clips of the some old movie telling the story of Joseph Smith. And Scott and Luke, you can rest assured that I'm going to find what this movie's called. And we will review it before too long. <laughs> it looks so bad that it would be right up our alley. Don't like you a, love the part where he kind of looked up to the sky and so did the little kid with him? Yeah, she, there's like a little girl that looks like a little boy because she has like a coconut bowl cut. And she's like, tell me, Joseph, is this where you saw thine angels? Aye, it is, little Lori. Oh. <laughs> they both look the off Mormons screen. Mormons probably, probably confiscated that movie by now and no one's allowed to watch it. Probably in the same vault as Disney's Song of the South. Um... Was that an actual, was that a thing? Yeah, that's where we got the song zippity Doodah" from. About Uncle uh, Uncle his... Uncle Remus and the Briar Rabbit. It's a movie. Disney's Song of the South. Disney made a movie so racist that they won't let anyone see it anymore. <laughs> song, Song of the South, Sweet Potato Pie, and I Shut My Mouth. You promise? Because I will send you Sweet Potato Pie if that's true. <laughs> going, going with the wind. Ain't nobody ever coming back again. <laughs> In addition to finding and following a brand new gospel of Jesus, the Mormons also believe that preserving its history is of utmost importance. Sweet potato pie. Do you think albino alligators like sweet potato pie? <laughs> probably. Anyways, we're, after we meet the Mormons, we're back to Ken Santa Sanders, and he tells us that the reason why he loves the history of Mormonism is because it's filled with treasure tales. And uh, and here, I, I, I at this point, I couldn't help but, but ask myself if treasure tales is an actual genre of literature, because if it is, I have never heard of it before this documentary. You know what it reminds me of? Veggie tales. Luke, would you like to add something coherent or intelligent? Uh, no, no. Okay, I so we'll just that. stick with the stupidity. I um, tell you what, you're really into this document. I am, man. I loved it. Like, we need to, we need to take this seriously. This what? is like the first week ever. The only, <laughs> the only reason why I'm saying we need to take this seriously versus all the other stuff is this is real. Real people died. Yeah. So, and it's okay to make jokes here and there, but we've got to at least tell the story with some semblance of respect out of respect for the dead. Oh. In the 70s and 80s, the LDS or Latter-day Saints Church started finding and buying rare antiquated documents related to the church from, well, where do you buy rare antiquated documents? From rare antiquated document dealers. One such and dealer One such dealer is Winnie the Poopopoly, the man from the beginning. And we learned his <laughs> real name is Shannon Flynn, and he took an interest in Mormon doctrine since he was a teenager, which by now by the way he looks could have been when the Mormon church was actually founded. That's a good point. <laughs> life He's has a little old. Life has been rough to Shannon Flynn. I don't know what's wrong with him, but life has been rough. Oh, really? Bother. He looks okay? Yeah, yeah. No, he doesn't. He really doesn't. <laughs> I've been re-watching The Walking Dead, and, and Shannon Flynn is like one stage below a zombie. <laughs> hey, respect. Be respectful. Shannon Flynn's still alive. I don't have to be respectful, Pooh. 
calm down. You don't have to be respectful of alive people. No. Oh, bother. dead people. Oh, bother. His uh, first book that he bought, he remembers perfectly, it's a pamphlet by B.H. Roberts titled Mormonism. It's origin in its history. And then Shannon Pooh Bear Flynn quickly became what can only be described as a Mormon history fanboy. He met other Latter-day nerds in bookstores, and I assume they would talk about, again, short-sleeve white button-up shirts with name tags and ties and avoiding the satanic beverage known as coffee. <laughs> That's a good idea. Hey, do you want to meet at that not-coffee house? Mormon, uh, our elder, <laughs> elder Flynn? Elder Flynn, I know you're 12, but do you want to go meet at the Mormon coffee house? What do they have there? Everything but coffee. Nothing hot. And nothing caffeinated. <sighs> At one of these Mormon meetings, Shannon Flynn meets Mark Hoffman. And it's at this point that Shannon says about Hoffman, in the, the Mormon document world, he was a rock star. How big is that world? <laughs> I don't know. It can't be huge. I suppose in Utah, it's a big deal. Well, yeah, but... And and we get our very first look at Mark Hoffman, and I understand that so far in this episode, I've been fairly mean to everyone. Um, so I want you to, to paint a word picture of what Mark Hoffman looks like. Um, hmm. He reminded me of uh, Luke Skywalker. Wavy hair, giant glasses... Either Luke Skywalker or one of the Beatles. Maybe one of the Beach Boys. I'm not really sure. I, You're I, welcome. I fully disagree with that assessment. <laughs> I thought he, it was a little Alfred Hitchcock look. He, he looked like uh, Luke Skywalker, except he was shorter and his face was different. <laughs> Mark Hoffman. He looks like... Uh, he looks, let me see. He looks like a big nerd. That's what he looks like. Picture, he look, picture he a nerd. Like St- like Steve Jobs when he was younger. Yeah, except Steve Jobs looked like, like Ashton Kutcher when he was younger. No, I'm sorry. He he is he's he is a stereotypical big glass wearing nerd. Everyone was a big glass wearing nerd in the seventies though. Yeah. Some I know. people were in the two thousands. This was the eighties. <laughs> Whatever, they're the same. So anyways <laughs> The eon, the eons before I was born. We're introduced to this nerdy dude who is a Mormon document rock star, and uh, while at or while a student at Utah State, Mark Hoffman found what appeared to be the earliest Mormon document in the earliest Joseph Smith holograph. Don't know what that means. What's a holograph? Because the only holographs I know of are the shiny Pokemon cards we used to get into fights about on the playground. Manuscript written by a person named as its author. Man, that's boring. Yeah, basically. So it's just a it's just a written copy of somebody basically. of somebody copying their own work from one paper to another paper. Holograph, a document wholly in the handwriting of the person of whom it proceeds and whose act it purports to be. Great. Basically, a signed, a signed letter. <laughs> Perfect. But um, Hoffman, when he finds this, is just 
happy as a pig in poop that he found this paper written by Joseph Smith himself, or Joseph Smith himself. And this document's covered in, in weird symbols, and, and, and of course we have that great signature from the all-American prophet, Joseph Smith. Joe. It reads, These characters were diligently made up, I mean copied by my own hand, <laughs> from the plates of gold. Then we're introduced to Dory Hoffman, Mark Hoffman's wife, which to me was the most shocking reveal of this whole entire documentary that this dork was married. Anyways, in a true <laughs> Anyway, in a true example of stereotypical Mormon sexism, Dory was the one who actually found this document in an old Bible that was once owned by Joseph Smith's sister's granddaughter. Try saying that five times fast. That's, that's that blows my mind. Joseph Smith's sister's granddaughter. Hey, you're never going to believe it. I've got this book that was uh, owned by George Washington's gardener's second cousin twice removed great-great-niece. It's his friend's cousin. <laughs> Great. Perfect. I'll buy it. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Dory finds this, but Mark takes all the credit. It turns out that what the couple discovered has been, or has become to be known as the Anthem document, which, according to Dory, validated the story of Joseph Smith, which makes me understand that Dory doesn't understand what the word validated means. Basically, this letter <laughs> written by Joseph Smith says, uh, hey, the Book of Mormon's true. That would be like finding a letter written by J.K. Rowling saying magic is real and then saying, ah, it's proof Harry Potter's a true story. Maybe she's just saying that it's contributing evidence to the, the whole validation work. That here's just another piece of the evidence that Joe is telling the truth all those years ago. Yeah, he wrote on another piece of paper that he's telling the truth. Well, it's got a, he's got a copy. Listen, everybody knows so that, was that you can't lie when you're writing it down. And you, d you can't lie when you're writing in symbols that no one understands but you. Right. Because he had the um them and the thumb them. So he popped, were yeah, those that, symbols supposedly right off the golden plates? Correct. But we'll get to what happened to the golden plates in a minute. I did some research for you guys, but we'll get to that. I appreciate that. Mark Hoffman decides then and there, after finding this unvalidating letter, that he's going to go into the document business and become a rare document dealer. And just like that, Hoffman was in the big leagues of Mormon document preservations. He began rubbing elbows with members of the Mormon hierarchy and coming to the attention of other Mormon document preservationists. I mean, we're talking big names here, too, like Brent Metcalf. <laughs> no one bigger and Metcalf was asked by Hoffman to do some genealogical work basically what, what Hoffman wanted Metcalf to do was uh, go through the past presidents of the church and find living relatives so that they could stalk them and ask them if they had any uh, documents they wanted to sell which, hey, if you want documents, it's I a mean, good place it's, to it's start. a pretty smart plan. Yeah. And, well, it worked. This plan worked. And their next find was a letter written by none other than Lucy Mack Smith, you guys. 
We got letters written by Lucy Mac Smith up in here. Now, Lucy Mac Smith is Joseph Smith's mom. So, it was a big deal to Mormons. Soon, people began realizing that they could sell Mormon documents for a lot of money. So, people who had these letters would reach out to Hoffman and see if he'd be interested in buying. And this led to Hoffman traveling all over the country. And before too long, Mark Hoffman expanded his dealings and started buying and selling documents and signatures of the most prominent names in American history. We're not just talking about Mormons here. We're talking about people like Mark Twain, John Adams, Betsy Ross, Paul Revere, and Daniel Boone. As his success grew, this nerdy Hoffman became, according to Mormon document dealers, not my assessment, theirs, uh, a real-life Indiana Jones. Uh, finder, <laughs> I don't, I don't think you can equate, hey, uh, or calling someone up that used to be related to a, a, an important Mormon, hey, do you have any, uh, old papers that maybe you want to sell me, to being chased by a bullet and hunted down by natives as you're trying to get into a plane and flying away. It just, it's just not the same. But, it's uh, not comparable. But he was becoming a prominent finder of antique documents and becoming a respected dealer. And during Mark Hoffman's meteoric rise, Shannon the Pooh Flynn became good friends of Mark and his wife. How good of friends, you may be wondering? Well, Shannon remembers a nice evening at the Hoffmans where they played celestial... (laughs) How good of friends, you may be wondering? Well, Shannon remembers a nice evening at the Hoffmans where they played celestial pursuit. And if you're thinking that I misspoke there and meant to say trivial pursuit, don't you dare question me. Celestial Pursuit is the Mormon version of that game. Or, as it says on the box, the ultimate and LDS trivia. Nice. Gotta make it to the Celestial Kingdom. And Shannon is amazed that Hoffman doesn't miss a question the entire time. And apparently, this convinced him to start doing document deals for Hoffman. Start working with Hoffman. He described the work as being given the opportunity to play along Michael Jordan or Brett Favre. And he just named a bunch of sports celebrities, like, in a row here. Like, we get it, Pooh Bear. Calm down. Your voice sounds like you're 12 words away from never being able to talk again. Save it. We've got questions. I don't know. They were huge. Really, Scott? Are you kidding me? Michael Jordan and Brett Favre were huge in the sports world? I did not know that. Yeah, they were huge. <laughs> huge. Wow. Huge. I the, Breaking news here, guys. Breaking news, dear listeners. <laughs> Michael Jordan and Brett Favre were huge stars of their respected sports. And you, and you think you don't get anything from this podcast. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> then one evening, document... Preservationalist Brent Metcalf was working in the Mormon historical archives and came across a book that created a huge stir among the Latter-day Saints higher-ups. And they did what any true religion does. They immediately fired him so he couldn't publish what he found. Here's the thing I don't don't get about the Catholic Church— and I don't get about the Mormons. How do you it's have... It's going to take more than firing to shut them up. But, no, it's not that. It's how do you spend 
so much effort and are publicized hiding documents of your own church's history and people are like, yeah, this is legit. This is the truth. Well, because you just feed them the story that like all these people are out to slander us and these documents aren't legitimate or whatever. I mean, people will believe anything if it comes from people that they trust. I mean, all it would take for me to denounce uh, the churches of Christ would be for someone to get up on stage and go, um, uh, we decided we're not going to read Mark anymore because we just don't like it and uh, we're going to hide it and Mark slanders us. Okay, well then you're not the true church. I'm going to move on and find something different. Well, yeah, but I mean, some people would do that, but there'd be a ton of other people who would be like, "Wow, these people are just phonies. They just hate the Church of Christ, right?" I mean, it's like the it's like the fake news stuff and the the political lies. I mean, you see how people like eat that whatever their whatever their favorite politician tells them, they like eat it up. Yeah. No, there's no balance whatsoever. And people would do the same thing in religion, even in the church. And I do want to explain the reason why I'm so fascinated with Mormonism is because of stuff like this. I, I'm trying to wrap my head around the abject silliness that is the Mormon doctrine. And it truly is a, a silly doctrine when you get down to it. It's fascinating stuff that people actually believe this. And I, 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 I don't get it. Well, I was watching the the uh, current president, I can't remember his name now, uh, talking about apologetics and its like importance in the Mormon faith. And he was basically discouraging people from really digging into that. And he was saying, well, our faith should be based on just that faith instead of uh, historical arguments. He's like, those are kind of, you know, you can look into those, but those aren't really where you need to put your right. trust. And I, like I, from what I've seen about... I've sat down with... Mormon missionaries before, like for several meetings in a row. Back during my dark ages, I decided that I was going to try to write a book about Mormonism because it still fascinated me. And so, like, I even went to a couple Mormon services. That's why I know that they pass around Wonder Bread and, and water for their communion. <laughs> I'm not even joking about that. But, uh, yeah, I and I kept bringing up logical points that they kept just... Oh, we just have to take it on faith. Any religion that says you have to take it on faith, that it's a leap of faith in order to get there, I don't see how you can go, yep, this is it. This is how we get to heaven. I, I do not get that. I guess if you're willing to take the first step into Mormonism to accept that Joseph Smith found these things, even though no one ever saw them and no one ever could confirm anything that he said, I guess you would believe anything after that. Yeah. If that's your system of reasoning. It's just, you know, I, I, I just don't understand. In the end, I, I just don't understand why a religion founded on the idea that a farmer found a box of gold plates that told about Jesus' time in America would be worried about something found in a book. Probably because it's fake. And Brent found no, something potential to destroy the faith of many a Mormon. Uh, but the documentary then takes us to December of 1983, two years before the bombing. Shannon the Pooh is back, and he tells us uh, that on his birthday, he was really happy to tell us his birthday, uh, uh, Mark showed him a document called The Salamander Letter. Now, why do you guys think it's called The Salamander Letter? Well, let me tell you, Scott. Because um... <laughs> there's an albino alligator east, Jason. <laughs> 
Further, Mark tells him that the salamander letter was at one time carried in the box, or, or in the same box as the golden plates. But he doesn't tell Shannon where he got the letter. Basically, Mark just wanted Shannon to photograph this letter, and Mark was on his way. Which, by the way, I, I wondered this. Um, where are the golden plates now? I looked this up. This is Good true. Question. This is true for the LDS's website. This is their explanation. According to the Mormons, Smith allowed, now I'm paraphrasing, but Smith allowed 11 dudes to look at the plates. 11 guys were allowed to look at the plates. These men became known as the Book of Mormon Witnesses. Then, Joseph Smith gave the plates back to the angel Moroni so they could never be examined by anyone else. I thought I had read that no one got to see them, that those 11 only got to see like his his uh, inscriptions of them. No, because later on, if you remember um, the McLennan or McLaren, if you looked at some of the news clippings, it said witness of the church. When you see that, those old guys from the 1800, if they have the title witness beside them, they're called witnesses because they were allowed to look upon the golden plates. Uh, they gave them back to the angel. So Convenient. After... Uh, uh, you know, he's all excited about seeing this, this, this letter. And then the documentary introduces us to the human embodiment of a wedgie. News journalist Rod Decker. And why do I say this? Because Rod Decker is introduced by singing the Utah Anthem as he's signing off from one of his news stories. The man's <laughs> a huge wedgie. That was, that was weird. He was a huge wedgie. Yes, this documentary is called Murder Among Mormons, but it could have also rightly been titled Nerds, Dorks, and Geeks. Discuss very old paper. <laughs> that title's too long. <laughs> and there's no alliteration. Anyway, Rod Decker is here to tell us about the Salamander letter. This letter was... How, did you miss this entire scene, Scott? Where Rod Decker explained why the Salamander letter <sighs> was called the Salamander letter? I tried to watch this three different times and ended up taking a small nap in each each <laughs> period. The letter was. Yeah, I actually, I actually was uh, pretty interested in this. I was engaged from start to finish. I watched it three times just this episode, and I, neither, not one time was I bored. <laughs> anyway, Rod Decker tells us about the Salamander letter. It's a letter from a prominent figure in early Mormonism, as well as being the originator of the neckbeard, a man by the name of Martin Harris. His facial hair is horrible. In the letter, Harris wrote that Joseph Smith told him that he was led to the golden plates by a white salamander, which I don't get why it's so shocking, because that is just as believable as anything else in Mormonism. <laughs> However, this was a contradiction, and shocking, I know, that the Mormon doctrine has contradictions in it, uh, but it was a contradiction to the church's version of Joseph Smith being led to the plates by an angel. It's almost as if Joseph Smith made up this story and then told two different versions to two different people. <gasps> almost. Shocking. Hey. And in their defense, who's to say that an angel couldn't appear as a white salamander to be able to do this? I mean, that's what uh, that's what it said about the devil in the Bible. 
Yeah. Beware, your adversary the devil appears as a white salamander sticking to walls and falling on women's <laughs> hair, making them scream. I mean, Satan made himself appear to be a serpent. Right. Why can an angel not and, make themselves appear to know, be a white salamander? Any, any researcher of amphibians will tell you that a serpent and a snake and a, 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 a salamander are basically the same thing. Well, I got a theory for you. Oh, that wasn't right. the point, they're, though. They're, I mean, angels both, can become anything. They're, uh, is a salamander a serpent? It's an amphibian. Same thing. It's not okay. even a reptile. Well, well, here's the theory. Okay. You know how this does... God cursed the snake? <laughs> the, God cursed the snake to, that it had to crawl on its belly, which yeah. seems to imply that it must have had legs. And since the theory also exists that Satan was an angel... Before the fall, um, that would mean that the salamander got its legs taken away, like the angels were salamanders, but then the salamanders got their legs taken away, and then they slithered, and that's how snakes came into existence. What do you think of that? I think that your theory hit was uh, hinging on the fact that snakes and salamanders were some from the same animal family, which they aren't. Well, cut that part out. Cut that out. <laughs> <clears throat> but it has it has nothing to do did with you guys, the animal. Did family. you know that uh, I mean, it, an angel could be in the form of a heifer if it wanted? Where are you getting this doctrine from? Where are you getting this from? You are just the, uh, my only point is a, a, a an angel could become the form of a tree, a talking well, tree. In, in Ezekiel, one of the heads on the uh, angels because they have four, right? One of them was an yeah. ox, right? So yeah. heifer. All right, here's Bam. here here. Do you want to hear the ridiculous truth about Moroni the angel? He was an angel sure. when he visited Joseph Smith, but he was also one of the lost tribe of of Israel. the The Mormons believe that the lost tribe of Israel, instead of you know doing what the Bible said and scattering among the Gentiles, uh, they got into a boat and sailed to North America and became the Native Americans. And uh, their America. their skin, but but Joseph Smith was also very adamant that Moroni was a white man. Um, <laughs> Anglo-Saxon white man, and uh, the only reason why Native Americans uh, had had darker skin is because they sinned against God. But Moroni died before the sin could happen, so he appeared still as a white man. Wait, ah. but the Native Americans, <laughs> Joseph Smith lived in like, the, like, no, he lived in. He met Moroni in eighteen twenties. There were still Native Americans back then. That was, uh, but you said they send they send after that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Moroni died and became an angel and came back. Oh, okay. Yeah, they before. were they were over here in America in like six hundred BC. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Right, yeah. America. That's why we have a whole, all that all that Hebrew written in in caves that the Native Americans lived in. <laughs> well, well, no, that's not you know, that's they, not true. There's something else in the Book of Mormon about that that they stopped using Hebrew. And started using the language of their fathers, Egyptian. I tell you oh, what, yeah. it's all starting to come together for me. Because the plates are written in Egyptian. Because why? <laughs> because you know, if there's one thing the Hebrews really enjoyed was the Egyptian culture. They're like, I can't wait to just take that and and use the <laughs> Egyptian hieroglyphics as my own. I'm pretty sure the, they were the the Pentateuch was written in Egyptian. <laughs> They took the the 
ancient language, you know, the the good years back before they got turned into slaves. Or when they became a great nation. Native Americans. (laughs) (laughs) Either way. Back when they were just a group of Middle Eastern white guys just chilling out. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like Joseph Smith didn't understand anything about the actual history of the Israelites. (laughs) You think? (laughs) We learn why Mark Hoffman was being so secretive with Shannon concerning the Salamander letter. It's because he was worried that the LDS church would attempt to hide the letter from public and hide it away. And so before... He even tried to sell it. He he sent it around so it could be photographed because the church had a history of concealing potentially embarrassing documents from the public. So Mark wanted to do everything in his power to make sure that the church couldn't sweep it under the rug. And soon after the discovery, Brent Metcalf suggested a buyer for this letter, uh, uh, a businessman and collector by the name of Stephen Christensen. Now, Christensen, or Christensen was a faithful Mormon, but he also believed there was a need for historical transparency. But he did buy the letter from Hoffman for 40 grand and then had the document authenticated as genuine and then just gave it to the church. This is where... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is where I get real confused about this whole thing. Because I'll be honest with you guys, for the majority of this first episode, the first time I watched it, I thought they were painting Mark Hoffman to be the villain of this story. Mm -hmm. Because... I, I don't... Because, basically, because of the way it started, with Pooh Bear sitting there like... I don't want to talk about this guy, but he was fantastic. And who else is going to be more fantastic than Mark Hoffman? The dude is Joseph Smith reincarnate. He's the Joseph Smith of finding Mormon documents. I said it. (laughs) But before the letter got into the hands of the Mormons, uh, it was published. It was made public. And people were like, guys, can you believe this This real silly religion? You know, that one that, that is American, so you know it's not true? Because it's about Jesus in America? You know, that religion that thinks that the Garden of Eden is in Jackson County, Missouri? You know that one? <laughs> <laughs> you know that, that religion that, that teaches that when you die, you get your own planet, and right now God lives on a planet called Golub? Remember that one? Anyways, uh, 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 salamanders. That's how Joseph Smith found the plate. Little amphibians on the ground. And so, immediately, the president of the LDS, a man by the name of Jordan, or Jordan, Gordon B. Hinckley, went on the defensive. Now, keep this in mind. He couldn't deny that the letter was authentic, that it was from 1830, because Christensen had it authenticated. So what he did was get up on a pulpit and suggest that the letter, 
may be forgery. Now, keep in mind, first of all, no one was going to forge this in 1830 because nobody could give a fart about the Mormons except for the Mormons. <laughs> the only thing that the Mormons did, because at this point in their history, they were actually trying to settle someplace in Ohio. That's another thing, too. Uh, uh, the angel Moroni told Joseph to go find a promised land, but the promised land kept changing as they walked. Because it kept getting kicked out. <laughs> Joseph Smith was actually shot and killed in Ohio. O-H. I-O. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Ohio doesn't mess around. You bring salamanders up in here, we're going to shoot you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it went from, like, Ohio to Missouri, and then finally they found themselves in the middle of nowhere in what is now Salt Lake City. No one wanted to live there because the lake was made of salt. But the Mormons were like, there's nobody here to kick us out. Perfect! Um, <laughs> so, anyways, Hinckley suggests that this letter was designed to hurt the Mormon church. And he basically tells them not to think about the letter because their time would be better spent blindly following him and the traditions of the Mormon church. Yeah, I'm confused about his statement. He's like, he's like, he doesn't deny that it's not, he doesn't deny it's authentic. We can't. And then he says, but it might be a forgery. <laughs> no, I, I think his suggestion was some dude in the 1830s are like, hey, you know, there's 12 people that call themselves Mormons. I'm going to write this letter and really mess with them. Could tell, I'm going to write about salamanders. Oh, <laughs> Thomas, you're such a kidder. I know, Jebediah. I know. Like, <laughs> I feel like if I was if I was going to write a letter back then, it would have been it would have been better than just one salamander addition to the story. But really, Hinckley's argument that he makes from the pulpit boils down to, and I'm not over exaggerating this. Uh, like, he's like, listen, when I die, I don't want to stand for the judgment seat and have to answer to the fact that I tried to find out whether or not the church that I was in was was legitimate. <laughs> you just, I just kept doing it. Hankley's like, guys, just just don't even read it, all right? Don't worry about it. You just listen to me. I got you. But that didn't stop the media from having a field day with the letter. As one talking head put it, instead of God and angels, the new Mormon history is about salamanders and magic, which I'm pretty sure is the next Harry Potter book. Harry Potter and the Salamanders of Magic. Another anchor said, and I love this quote, he said, it would be like finding a letter that Moses got the Ten Commandments from the ghost of Elvis Presley. <laughs> Basically, it was a blow to many people's belief in the Mormon church um, because <clears throat> instead of Joseph Smith's original story that an angel showed him this, it was more like, folk magic and witchcraft with the salamanders and, and whatnot. And then we learn again that Steve Christensen gave this $40,000 letter to the Latter-day Saint church and they kept in their archives, which meant from that point on, no researcher uh, that wasn't affiliated with the church could have access to the original document. And in a letter... Transparency, yeah. And at first I was like, this dude was working for the Mormon higher-ups. But then it hit me because in Christensen's letter, he wrote, it appears that dealing in Mormon documents can be dangerous business. Uh, I think that he was probably threatened. Like, hey, you're either going to give us this document or, uh, you know, me and some of my Mormons, we're going to fit you with the basement shoes. You might go swimming in the Salt Lake and not come back. 
Or they gave him a buttload of money for it. Either way, it needed to be hushed up. Well, the, re- the, the title of this documentary really confused me because you know you call a group of Mormons together in one place a murder, right? They're a murder of Mormons. So I was... <laughs> <laughs> Just like the crows. That was the joke. Yep. Scott Judge spelling it out. Yeah. <laughs> the document then leaps forward on the timeline, taking us to August 1985, just two months before the bombings. We're introduced to a new person, a human muppet and coin lover named Alvin Rust. Alvin was... <laughs> A rare coin and document dealer who began buying Mormon money items from Mark Hoffman. Now, the documentary does not go into this, so allow me just for a moment to shed light on what Mormon money was. When the Mormons settled in the West, they actually started their own state known as Deseret. Because one thing Mormons are not is imaginative with their names. They literally just put an extra E in the word desert. And they're like, this is the name of our state, Deseret. And they they founded this state back in 1849. And before the U.S. government shut that nonsense down, they printed their own currency. Now, the reason why our currency has value is because, theoretically, it doesn't anymore, but theoretically, uh, when we have a dollar bill, it represents a dollar worth of gold. It's the gold standard. We're not on that anymore, but when currency actually meant something, that's what uh, uh, it was based on. Now, the Mormons were poor, so they couldn't have a gold standard. What was their currency backed with? Livestock. Nice. You had a, if you had a desert $1 bill, you had a dollar worth of cow. <laughs> what happened if that cow died? I don't know. Neither did they. <laughs> Didn't think it through that far. And so that was the paper money that Hoffman was selling to Alvin, these these desert currencies. One day, Hoffman tells Alvin that he found the largest private collection of Mormon money and documents in existence, and he found it in New York City. The problem was Hoffman didn't have the money to buy the collection, so he asks Alvin to finance the purchase. So Alvin gave Hoffman 185000 thousand dollars to purchase the documents that would become known as the McLennan collection and ironically the McLennan collection is also going to be available at Kohl's this fall if you're looking for some new (laughs) some new bed sheets go for the McLennan collection (laughs) and the Antoinette sink in the collection was a letter written by Joseph Smith's wife that said that it was actually Joseph Smith's older brother who met Moroni and found the golden plates. Again, this information would be potentially devastating to the church's legitimacy. Now, you may be asking, why would Joseph Smith's wife write something so defamatory about her husband and his religion? Keep in mind, one of the tenets that Joseph Smith taught adamantly was polygamy. So you've got poor Mrs. Joseph Smith up there in upstate New York just living a a life as a nice Puritan farmer. 
And then Joseph's like, hey, I want to marry a whole bunch of women. Started my own church. You want to come with me? I can't imagine why she would want to throw him under the bus. <laughs> no animosity there, is there? <laughs> Not only was Mark Hoffman in on getting these McLennan papers, but also Steve Christensen was going to work with Hoffman to acquire them. And by the time they got the papers, they were offered $300,000 by the LDS Church for the documents. However, as Shannon the Pooh darkly tells us, you know, secrets just can't be kept. You know, there's an old story. The only way to keep a secret between two people was to kill one of them. It's kind of true. And then he starts laughing. And I am officially terrified of Shannon the Pooh, and I wish that I haven't been calling him Shannon the Pooh for this entire summary. Is he still alive? He's probably coming for you right now. He's like, oh, bother. I'm going to go get him. I'm going to eat me a smack roll of honey, and then I'm going to go kill Zach. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't that be terrible if he showed up at your house and he just spoke in that voice as he was murdering you? Seriously. And then on October 15th, 1985, at 8.15 a.m., we hear a police dispatcher saying that there's an emergency at an office building. This building is known as the Judge Building. A bomb went off in the building after it was full of workers, but but only one man was killed. The bomb was addressed to the victim of the fatality, Stephen Christensen. We see the corpse of Christensen laying in front of the office door, or what used to be the office door, to his his building. It, it was just blown away. There was debris on the floor and nails embedded to the walls. I personally was not prepared to see a corpse. Not that you see much, but you see enough. It's still there. They don't usually show stuff like that. Yeah, and, and this one does not shy away from the body. Um, But... Obviously, the the Salt Lake City community is shocked by this violent act of terror. And then, the same day, only one hour after the Christensen bombing, at 9.28 a.m., another explosion is reported, this time in the suburbs, outside of the city. We learn that the bombs that went off were very similar, that they were crafted probably by professional assassins, and were triggered by an electrical timing device. And this second bomb also killed someone. It was meant to kill one of Christensen's former business associates, Gary Sheets, but killed his wife, Kathy, instead. This sets off a panic in the Salt Lake City community. The local newspaper, the Salt Lake City Tribune, received a message from someone claiming to be the bomber, saying that they were not finished. Caller said that there were four more bombs out in the Salt Lake City area, but the police assumed that that was a copycat or prank call, but they still were combing the area for explosives. Then speculations began to be reported in the media. Theories for the bombing's motive ranged from disgruntled investigators targeting Christensen and Sheets because they did have a financial uh, firm where they would suggest or help people invest their monies or their money not their monies i'm not british just their money (laughs) others noticed that sheets and christensen 
work together to purchase the salamander letter. Later that day, Bud Willoughby, Salt Lake City's chief of police, gave a press conference. He tells the public that they do feel that the two bombings were connected, and he also reveals that they are looking at two possible motives. The financial dealings that Christensen and Sheets were working together on, and the second motive was this white salamander letter, which was in possession of the Mormon church. It's that latter motive that catches the attention of those in the world of document dealing, all six of them. The next day, many of Mark's associates tried to get a hold of Mr. Hoffman, but could not reach him. Most of them couldn't reach him, but the ones who did reported that Hoffman was very nervous. Seeing as several people knew that Hoffman and Christensen were working together on the McLennan collection, they warned Mark to get himself and his family to safety. Hoffman partially uh, uh, heeded that warning, and he moved his family out of their home. But basically anyone involved in the dealing of Mormon documents was on high alert in the days that followed that initial bombing. Then the media began to report rumors of the McLennan collection and how they would be even more damaging to the church than the Salamander letter. Our good friend and coin collector Alvin goes on the news and confirms that the church agreed to purchase the collection from Hoffman and Christensen for $300,000. However, when President Hinckley was questioned about it, he told the news that Hoffman agreed to donate the collection and there was never any discussion of purchasing the documents because Hinckley's a big old fat liar. Then... (laughs) Then when Alvin called the higher-ups that same day and said, Hey... I thought you said you guys wanted to buy the the McLennan collection. They're like, yeah, we totally want to buy the McLennan collection. Wait a second, but your president just said that you didn't want to buy it. You wanted it donated. And they're like, listen, buddy, we're a business here. We're not a church. We're a business. Of course we want to buy it. Yeah, so Alvin's really confused right now because, well, it's his money that bankrolled this entire purchase. He probably wanted his money back, and he was counting on that 300000 for him to, to break even. But we also learn that on the day that Christensen was killed, he and Hoffman had two different appointments with the higher-ups at the LDS church where he was supposed to peddle the documents to them, make this deal, and he missed both of them. On October 16th, Mark Hoffman has another appointment, this time with an attorney that represented a wealthy Mormon. The plan was for this attorney to pay Hoffman for the McLellan collection, and then the attorney would hold the collection for the church, but that meeting never took place. Because just after 2 p.m., news of another bombing came in. This time, it wasn't a package bomb, but rather it was a car that was rigged to explode. Mark Hoffman's car, to be exact. In the car were several historical documents, Hoffman had the McLellan collection in the trunk of this exploded vehicle. And Mark's friend, Brent Metcalf, rushed to the scene, identified Hoffman's car as the one that was exploded, and the cops immediately told Brent that he needed to get out of his house because his life was in danger. Soon, all of these prominent dealers and associates of Hoffman and Christensen 
in the Salt Lake City area are told by authorities to leave their homes for their own safety. As for Hoffman, he doesn't die in the explosion. But we see in graphic detail that his, some of his fingers were blown off and his body was riddled with debris. He's in incredibly rough shape, but when you look at the footage of the scene and that car was nothing but a burnt shell, just a burnt skeleton that used to be a car, how anyone survived that explosion is beyond me. Honestly, when I saw the photos of him in the hospital for surviving a car bomb, I was like, he doesn't look too bad. <laughs> Until they showed the up-close footage of his hands. Yeah, those are a little rough. I mean, he doesn't. I wonder why his hands got the worst of it. Well, I think I think you're right, but you gotta. They took those pictures of him at the hospital after he was cleaned up a little bit. You saw pools of blood on the street out by that car. Like, yeah. Well, they they didn't show his legs either. So, I mean, and the car the bomb was under the car. So, I, I just it just amazes me that he was alive to be taken away. I I, I don't understand how he survived that. In the hours following the third bombing, the tension was at an all-time high in the Salt Lake area. More hoax bomb threats were being called in, which resulted in area-wide lockdowns. And I know this is a very serious part, but this might be, to me, the next thing that is said uh, might be the funniest thing that was said in this entire documentary. Because there's a reporter standing outside of... Uh, the what's known as the Temple Square. It's the headquarters of the uh, Mormon Church. And he reports that everyone in the Temple Square, including the Mormon Youth Symphony, were evacuated after what was believed to be a bomb threat. And the reason why I found that funny is what an odd way to report the news that everyone was evacuated from that building. I mean, I guess it's better than saying... Uh, Everyone at the temple, or everyone on the temple square, except for the Mormon Youth Symphony, were evacuated. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> maybe they're the last. They're the last to get evacuated. Just, if anything, just, they have to stay there and sing. It's just so weird to be like, <laughs> guys. You know, I want to know how serious this was. The Mormon Youth Symphony was evacuated. <laughs> <laughs> And the documentary fades to a recording of a Mormon service where they're all singing songs about the latter day. And we hear the voice of Brent Metcalf saying, I didn't think that the Mormon document business was a dangerous business. I thought it was an exhilarating business, but there was definitely an underbelly to Mormon document dealing. Whoever committed these murders are somehow related to these documents. Most likely, it was somebody who was LDS, who knew the details of what we were doing. It could have been someone who had a loved one who had a crisis of faith as a result of all this. They wanted to inflict damage and harm. It seems retaliatory. And that's the end of episode one. Now keep in mind, he pronounced retaliatory retaliatory, which I appreciated that he added an extra syllable in there. I'm proud of him. Oh, and I forgot too. 
uh, the best part of this entire first episode was during the scene of uh, Celestial Pursuit. Because you see, like, they're recreating uh, these Mormons gathering around playing this game. And someone brings out a plate of Rice Krispies treats. And you just see the actor who's playing Shannon the Pooh's hand hover over him and then wiggle his fingers like he's picking the perfect treat. He's going to get the best one. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, Rice Krispies. I want that one. Rice Krispies are overrated. All right. pop. We're going to dive into our review now. Now, keep in mind that because this was not a doctrinal episode, it wasn't a doctrinal piece of media, we will not be reviewing it for its scriptural accuracy uh, because that would be zero. But we're just going to review it on the EPS of our SEPS scale, beginning with entertainment value. Let's go with the lowest here. Scott! <laughs> Why do you assume I'm the lowest? Because I took a nap. Because you didn't watch uh, it and could, could not put together. You couldn't put together one of the biggest plot points of the entire show, and that was the salamander are letter. Sh- are you sure? How else was I going to get an albino alligator comment in? You know me. I'll go to extremes. Uh, I'm going to give it a. Eh, I'm going to give it a 15. I'm really anxious to see. How all this plays out, I mean, unfortunately, I really feel like I've been left hanging uh, to, to seal this up, but huh. it's I've seen worse A things. A three-part documentary left you hanging after part one. Yeah, it's horrible. I mean, how terrible of a documentary would it be if it wrapped everything up in the first episode, <laughs> and then the other two were just 45 minutes of Mormons playing Celestial Pursuit? Hey, wouldn't need to see that. Let's just get it. Show, us, show us the baby. Quit telling us about the labor pains. I want to know who did it. Okay. Luke? Uh, I'm going to give it a 20. I actually really enjoyed it, and I found it to be captivating. I didn't. I was never really that interested in Mormons until two showed up at my house in, in Hilliard and set up a Bible study with me. And so I was, like, doing my research, you know, before we were doing this. And uh, then they never showed up. But <laughs> I did. I did find it to be a very intriguing set of ideas and so this was this was pretty interesting to me uh 20 i'm gonna give it i'm gonna give it a 25 what this documentary has everything i never heard this story before i had no idea about the dark underbelly of mormon document uh, uh trading it, it it i watched this three times just this episode and i was not bored at any point in those three and i learned something new I wasn't bored either because the nap's never boring. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, the next one is parental control. Was there. Uh, I'm gonna... Okay. Let me finish explaining it, Scott, for jumping the gun. I know you know what we're doing, but assume that somebody that maybe didn't listen to this before might might not know what's happening. Parental control, basically, is there anything in there that uh, you would not let young kids watch? Um, Is it a a family documentary on murder? (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Scott. (laughs) I'm going to give that a, I'm going to give that a 10. I mean, obviously, we talked about the corpses that were in there. That'd be a tough thing for a kid to watch. 
Um, so, I mean, I wasn't so much bothered by it myself, but depending on the audience, it's going to create some problems. All right. Luke, where are you at? Probably. No, your location on Earth, where are you at? Guam. Thank you. Go ahead. And I, why would you rate this? I think I would rate this a probably a mm, 12 and a half, right down the middle. I'm going to go 11. And uh, the reason being is there, you're right. There is no, there's not a single swear word in this entire documentary. There's no even inkling of promiscuity or anything like that. But the thing that got me is, uh, first of all, my wife is obsessed with these true crime stuff. I don't get it. She is, she's <laughs> terrible. She won't watch horror movies with me. I've tried to get her to watch the new It like 400,000 times. I know, Luke, it's a, it's a movie about a killer clown. There's a bunch of bad words in it, so don't watch it. Um, but, <laughs> but she's like, oh, I can't deal with that. But then I walk in, and she's watching the most horrific terrifying true crime story that's ever been produced the other day not murder among the mormons i don't even know what this is called it's like it's like father friendly next door fun time and i walk in one day from coming on work just in bed and i just see dead bodies piled up in a corner like you'll never believe the horror that happened that night in tulsa and i'm like what in the world is this she's like it doesn't bother me i find it fascinating and 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 but i'm watching this and you know, I think that I gave this a lower score than what I gave Gladiator, and Gladiator was much more violent and bloody, but there's something that gets me about seeing a pool of blood on the side of the street that I know belongs to a human being that actually lived. Yeah. And for that reason, it's rated TV-14, and I think that's the right rating. Um, But yeah, for, for the sake of that rating, I'll give it 11 which brings us down to should you watch it? Does this have any merit, Scott? Uh, I gave it a thirteen. I, I think there's going to be a wide spectrum of people that would be interested in this. I wasn't as much as what you were, obviously, but I think there's people like you that would absolutely love it. Um, it I'm very, there was, very anxious to. There was to one finish cowboy, one cowboy in this, or a wrestler. Scott oh, it'd be, would be it'd be a twenty, be a twenty fourth. Wouldn't that be great? If this was produced by WWE. <laughs> yeah, I'm right I'm right in the middle of it. All right. 13. Luke. Uh, I'm gonna give it an eighteen. I mean, I feel like if you're interested in the Mormon church and this is your thing or document collection or whatever, this is like right down your alley and it's good information. I mean, especially if you're interested in the Mormon church, this is very relevant. So eighteen. All right. And I was struggling with this one too, because What's the merit of hearing the story? It's fascinating, but am I enriching my life by this? And in the end, I, I'm going to give it a 20. Because if this documentary does one thing really well, it's sheds light on the ridiculousness of the Mormon religion and what they believe and mormonism is a huge following and the reason why it is so huge is because they evangelize like crazy and uh i I think that anyone who has had a mormon knock on their door 
which I believe is probably 90% of the, the population, should watch this movie just before they open their first mouth and saying, hey, have you heard the good news that Jesus wrote a third New Testament? You can be like, yeah, salamanders, and then shut the door in their face. So, <laughs> so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a twenty. It was fascinating, and 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 it really goes to show that you don't need to go to the extreme to have a fascinating true crime documentary. That it doesn't have to be blood and gore to excess. It doesn't have to have a bunch of swearing in it. It doesn't have to be uh, their nudity doesn't need to be shown to have something that is truly captivating. So. I wonder how interesting this would be to somebody who wasn't interested in religion. I doubt. Because obviously, well, my wife. I think we are a little bit more into it because we kind of well, have looked into some of that true. before. Scott, this entire time is like somebody twisted on his his his, his little baby bits and wouldn't let him go. <laughs> so. no, I think that's why I gave it a thirteen because I don't think people who have any interest in religion would want to watch this. Most people. They don't have interest in religion would want to watch this. I, I think there's a, a wide, wide variety, a wide range of those who would and wouldn't. I think it's kind of right in the middle. Well, I will say for the past three yeah. days, it's been number two on uh, the most watched Netflix list. So people are really? watching it. Yeah. I could could be wrong. It is actually very well could be wrong. It is, it is becoming very popular uh, beyond even what I thought. There are. There are definitely those people who enjoy watching this stuff because they're not religious and they just love watching things that affirm why they're not religious. And this would definitely fall into that category. You also got to keep in mind there are some people like my wife, like most women that I know for some reason, that are truly fascinated with true crime. And they'll watch anything yeah. with true crime. That's why there's so many true crime documentaries. Um, so some of the biggest podcasts in the world are true crime stuff. No, oh, trust me. I know because every day when I walk home, if Kelsey's not watching bloody corpses up on the wall, she's listening to crime junkies and full body chills. <laughs> Kelsey loves true crime document or podcast so much that she owns true crime podcast merch. I can't get her to watch an Ooh. episode of my own podcast. <laughs> because it gets weird yeah all right so after all the scores are added up this is where we land scott gave it a 51 which is a d minus luke gave it a 63 which is a c and i gave it a 76 which is a so that means that the first episode of murder among the Mormons is a 63 or a C. So, will the second episode live up to the first episode? Will it exceed it? Will it crash and burn? Who knows? Scott probably still won't like it because I imagine they don't wrap everything up seeing as there's a third episode. But... <laughs> it's going to be tough. But we will find out next week. And because we are watching the... Uh, uh, the um, same thing that we advertised last week. We do not have a trailer to watch. Well, that's going to do it for us uh, this week. I'm Zach Geiler. I'm Scott Judge. I'm Joseph Smith. I knew that was I dubbing. did, too. I'm a little <laughs> even disappointed I gave him the opportunity. 
Uh, if you want more, please visit our website, RottenerRighteous.com, or like us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash RottenerRighteous. You can shoot us an email at RottenerRighteous uh, at gmail.com. And if you're listening to us on iTunes, please give us five stars. Appreciate it. Love you. Uh, so, before we go, I... Hey, we need, we need to interject one more thing before we close. If you have pictures of you and an albino alligator, please send them to Rotten and Righteous at gmail.com. Scott, you, do, you, do you even think for a minute? For a minute. I'm hoping. That's going to make it I'm hoping. the final cut. I'm praying. <laughs> albino alligators, Rotten and Righteous at gmail.com. Two weeks, Scott is going to be singing Unanswered Prayers by Garth Brooks. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, but before we go, remember to say your prayers and obey your parents. And, um, Luke, I, I know you don't have kids yet, but I've got to tell you that, that being a father is, is really kind of bittersweet. I mean, you get awesome moments. Like right now, my boy's three and he basically thinks that I'm Superman, but I know that, that someday he's going to realize that his dad is just a regular guy who likes to wear a cape. Yeah. Good night, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) And, well, it worked. This plan worked. And their next find was a letter written by none other than Lucy Mack Smith, you guys. We got letters written by Lucy Mack Smith up in here. She was known by her friends as Lou Mack. Right. And by her enemies as Sumac. Um, because <laughs> she gave people rashes. <laughs> uh, that's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs>